A magician mysteriously appeared in a quiet town one day. He performed shows that dazzled the eyes and warmed the heart. Word spread, and soon every host wanted him at their party. His attractive features, compelling stories, and spectacular performances created high demand. All who saw him spoke highly of him, for his shows not only amazed, but seemed to transform its viewers. One evening, he arrived at a party to a chorus of gasps. His entire frame painfully doubled over under a hunched back. After a story, everyone laughed it off. He performed as usual, and the party applauded as usual. But his back never straightened. He arrived at the next party with his eye swollen shut. The next he entered, suffering with a troubling cough. He arrived at each party with another deformity, some noticeable, some subtle. Such deformities continued to accumulate gradually. Though these did not hinder his performances, they did alter his appearance. Soon, no one recognized him. His demand waned. Many forgot him. Then, one night, a dinner host actually turned him away. The shelter is down the street, he curtly informed the magician. A similar rejection happened at the next party, and then the next, and the next. Each time, they delivered the rejection with more severity. The magician continually attempted admittance until one night, a host threatened him. He said with a level of disgust, If you continue pretending to be a magician, I will ensure you never return. The magician wandered through the dark town. Eventually, he circled back upon the party when a few drunks stumbled out of it. They laughed loudly as they staggered in his direction. Hey, one of them slurred as they approached. It's the guy who thinks he's a magician. This aroused a howl of laughter as they pointed out every deformity as evidence of his worthlessness. They encircled him and jeered. If you are a magician, perform a little show for us. When he did nothing, one spat in his face. Another punched him in the stomach. Emboldened by his lack of retaliation, they grabbed him by the beard and dragged him down an alley and beat him. The next morning, a woman who suffered chronic back pain woke up with full mobility, able to stand straight for the first time in years. On the street, a blind beggar rubbed his eyes multiple times to ensure he really did see the sun glinting off the buildings. And elsewhere, a fever broke on a child suffering the plague. All across town, many found something healed and repaired. 
the town buzzed. But no one thought about the magician until some heard rumors of an amazing performance in the next town. We're going to read this passage about being bruised and crushed and killed and mutilated and murdered. Pastor Brandon, this is not for Christmas. We reserve this for Good Friday. We have to remember that Christmas is about the coming of Jesus. And it's far too easy for us to kind of sterilize the whole concept of God coming to humans. And, and we romanticize the idea of a manger and animals and wise men. And we make all this look really nice. And we hear about it as kids so often. We tell it to kids. It's become really a kid story in many ways. And we hear it so often that sometimes we need to stop and say, well, why did he come? And we say, well, we know to save the world. Yeah, but sometimes looking at one's death puts light upon one's birth. The birth can have more meaning when you see how the life ends. And so we will see how Isaiah talks about that in this passage so, yes, death. Um, that is where we're going to break in this Christmas Eve. It is the most scandalous idea that God would come to visit humans in the form of a servant of all things. And as Philippians 2, 5 and on says that God, uh, that Jesus, when he came, gave up the comforts of divinity and took on the form of humanity and then the form of a servant and then took on death, and then death of a cross, which is a total downward mobility, descending, descending, descending. We would never dare ask God to do that for us. And God didn't need to be asked. He chose. That's the scandal of Advent, that God would reveal himself as a servant. So let's read it. Isaiah 52, it begins in verse 13. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now the translation is kind of thick in some of the more literal translations. Um, some of the others make it sound a lot clearer. And what they basically say is, who would have thought that this was God's plan, that he would reveal himself through a sufferer, in a nutshell? So that's who has believed what he has heard from us. Who will believe that God has revealed himself in this way? And so we are then going to see that this servant goes through an immense amount of of suffering. And it's a marvel to this prophet. I don't understand what the future is exactly going to be, but I see that God is going to reveal himself in a very, very, very mysterious way. And so verse two, this is the Christmas part. For he grew up 
before him, the servant, Jesus, grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So he did not come born in the family of Caesar, in the palaces of Rome, where there would be trumpets and parades and the calendars marked with a special day commemorating the emperor's son's birthday, thus becoming a federal holiday throughout the empire in which on that day people would launch gladiatorial games and other events in honor of Caesar's son's birthday. No, that didn't happen for Jesus. He was not born in a palace, but in the manger, in an animal's sleeping and feeding area. This was not beauty in the sense that the world sees beauty. Just a dry little weed. Who are you? He didn't even come to the center of the world. He wasn't born in Rome. As we said, he wasn't born in Ephesus or in Antioch or in Alexandria. Those are the four largest cities of the Roman Empire. Not born in any of these centers of thinking, of culture, of creativity, of production, of industrialization. None of these big cities were host to him. Instead, he was born in Bethlehem, which is a tiny, tiny, tiny little town about a a gummy bear's throw away from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem and Bethlehem are so insignificant that Rome had to send their procurators who are on probation to go rule that region. And nobody cared about the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. Oh, they speak Hebrew over there. The rest of the world speaks Latin and Greek. Get with it over there. Oh, they keep the Sabbath and they circumcise their boys, all of which the Greeks and Romans thought was mutilating the human body, was being lazy on a certain day. Oh, they don't eat pig over there, which is, of course, very tasty to a lot of people, especially the Greeks and the Romans. So these are, this is the backwaters of the Roman Empire. You have the stage of the world and Jesus is born not only backstage, but in the bathroom backstage. That's how Rome would see Bethlehem. What kind of a king comes here? A place that Pontius Pilate did not want to rule. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and antiquated with grief. And as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now truly Jesus had some popularity in his life, but in the larger scale of the world, nobody cared about him. Caesar did not give a single nod to him, nor any rich people around the world. He was followed by peasants, by people so poor And so out of work that they could follow him around. You think about that ever? Do these people work? No, some of them don't. They don't get to. He is not popular or powerful by the means of the world. In verse 4, Surely he, this servant Jesus, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, humans look at him and the suffering he goes through and says, Ha! God's giving him what he deserves. He earned this. 
And Isaiah is saying, no, no, humans esteemed him as God's punishment. He chose this path. And so not only is it the loneliness of choosing to serve the world by suffering, but then the world you're serving, turning its back and saying, well, you got what you deserved, rather than saying, thank you very much for serving us. Uh, Five. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth which is amazing. I work with a lot of high school students and all it takes is one bad Snapchat conversation or something posted on the internet about them and they have to open their mouth. They have to retaliate. They have to defend themselves. They have to fight back, bite back, cut people up. And Jesus here is getting far more than just slandered socially. He is being mutilated physically and unjustly. If there's ever a time to speak, to defend oneself, to say, you guys are going to get it one day. Just wait till my dad hears about this. Or three days, buddy. That's all you got to make amends because I'm going to be back. Was it the Terminator or something? I'm back. I don't remember what it is, but yeah. Um, But he opens not his mouth. Nowhere in this moment is he tempted to say, I will get even. He has a mission and he knows that it's misunderstood, but he's going to go through with it. Eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living. That's another way of saying you died stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was treated like a common criminal, even though he was innocent. Now, crucifixion has just become, you know, the cross has become a symbol in Christianity and people wear it as jewelry and we see it hung around and, and it's even, you know, it's on highways as we drive around. There's a cross. And in America, it, it has a sort of safe image of religion or a relationship with God or forgiveness. But you have to understand that to see a cross in the time of Jesus was state-sponsored terrorism. Crosses were meant to strike fear in the heart of all who saw them. Crosses were reserved for those whom the government wanted to make a public example of. 
if you enjoy your life and your prosperity, quotes, prosperity, um, don't do what they did. And they would put it in the most public of places on the sides of highways where those people would suffer and die so that everyone saw and knew, yeah, we are reminded of who rules the world and you don't mess with Caesar. It's so brutal that Rome refused to crucify their own citizens. That's why Paul was beheaded. But Jesus is crucified because he's not a Roman citizen. And crucifixion is for criminals. This is not a glorious death. Slaves were crucified commonly. A master of a slave could crucify his um, slave for any reason at all. He did not have to appeal to anybody. If his slave disobeyed or woke up late, it depends on the master. He could crucify his servant. This is the lowness that Jesus is taking. And when it says the thing there about his graving with the wicked and then with a rich man in his death, the crucified were not buried. They were left to hang until natural processes took over or they needed to make room for the next crucified person. And so they would then be thrown into a, basically a pile just where they let the people have natural processes take over. No burial. That Jesus is buried is an exception, which is why you see people collaborating and coming to the authorities to request the body. You're not allowed to touch a crucified body, especially as a Jew, you can't touch a dead body anyways, but they're getting permission because this is an unusual process. And then he's buried in a tomb, which is a rich person's place. And then in verse 10, Yet, despite the horror, this Christmas horror, what is this, the nightmare before Christmas, right? (laughs) Despite this, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Is that allusion to the resurrection? The will of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. And so we see God comes, the the scandal of Advent, not only that he comes as a servant, but then he comes and gives up his life. And it's easy to say, ha, how powerful is your God? He was killed by humans and he never had the power to stop it. But Isaiah is saying that the will of the true God prospered in seeing this defeat. That the, the world is such a wreck and it's in so much brokenness and pain that the only way forward was not trying to win like everyone else is doing. The only way to go forward was to actually purposely lose and there find the trap door at the bottom to move forward. That's what Isaiah is saying. It was God's will that his son would lose in the game of life. 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, it's presumably Yahweh talking here, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered 
with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus could go on with this plan without having to defend himself or fight against his oppressors because he believed that the best person to speak for him was God. As many have put it, Good Friday was man's answer. We don't want him. But Easter Sunday was God's answer. No, he is the king. Jesus didn't have to speak and was doing right by not speaking because God would do the ultimate message through the resurrection. That's, that's a profound announcement about who Jesus is. Jesus who has said all day long, but I'm God, don't do it. No, don't do it. You'll regret this. That would have gone nowhere when God is saying, you killed him, but I'm going to bring him back to life, which is abnormal. Just to show all of you that you were wrong in your assessment of him, the dry weed, the plain, boring man who had absolutely no appearance that you should want him, who was beaten beyond recognition, that yes, him and this gruesome path was my stamp of approval. I have chosen him. That's the suffering servant. Now, this passage is cited in the New Testament nearly 40 times. Parts of it, or allusions to it, nearly 40 times. The New Testament loved this passage. You can see why it loved it. It so clearly seems to hint at the coming of Jesus. One of the places where it does that is in Mark 10, verse 45, where James and John ask Jesus to give them places of honor in his kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't know what you ask. You can't, I don't think you guys can handle what I'm about to go through. Oh no, we can do anything. Oh, we're strong. We're strapping young lads. Jesus has to take them around him and teach them, listen, You're thinking like Roman officials. You're thinking like the powerful of this world who can think only about the next position or the next place to get or what I must do to accomplish this. You're thinking only about your own ambition. Then he says, Mark 10, 45, but the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Which many commentators believe he is alluding to this passage. Being a servant and giving his life as a ransom. Forty times. It's an important passage. And so, of course, we're looking not only at the coming of the servant who served us, but we're remembering that we are called to follow in these steps. That, yes, he came once as a servant. His second advent, the future, the return of Jesus is going to come in the future. But in between, where is the servant? In between, we are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Now, not all of us are going to be called to die in the same way. And nor shall you seek or pursue such an end. But how many of us need to learn to shut our mouths and let God declare who we are? Or God to vindicate us? Or trust that God will take care of what's happening? Or trust that what we're going through is his will? Now, God never punishes us 
We cannot see that our, uh, that our suffering, that our pain, that our hardships are God getting back at us. Well, you were that lamb that was led astray. So now I'm going to make it hurt a little bit just to teach you a lesson. No, we see in this passage that the servant comes because the sheep has gone astray. The hardships that we go through are not punishment. Their opportunity to learn the way of the servant. Because what we learn in Isaiah, in this glorious prophetic book that sees a lot about the end of kingdoms, of Israel's and Babylon's and all these kingdoms he prophesies against, he has one thing to say for the world. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, he's going to write later in his prophecy. A new heaven and a new earth, but it's not going to be paved through human ingenuity. It's going to be paved when humans decide to take on the form of the servant. The world will be saved when the world is served. That's what the servant songs call us to see. If one Jesus can save us through his one life of service, what can all of his followers do to the world through their lives of service? I read a passage like this and it makes me marvel that God not only becomes a human, which is right there are hard enough to grasp, but I guess humans can kind of grasp because the Greeks had similar ideas. Like the gods would at least come down and mingle with humans, but that this God would take the form of a human, but then live an actual human existence. He would have an actual human experience to the point that he would die like a human. If you think about that for a minute, God could have become a human and then said, yeah, I will live 99% of the human experience, but that death part, I'll let you guys go through that. He took on all of humanity. Even, well, it says he bore our, our illnesses and our afflictions. He carried our sorrows, a man of griefs. There was nowhere he wouldn't go to relate to humanity. And you right now, there is nowhere he won't go to relate with you. How far will we go to approach others? How do we come to others We saw how far God went. He didn't just come to us, but he went ahead of us even to our own deaths. He took on every form possible. And yet we think that we're sharing the love of God by only going so far with people. I'm just going to be myself yeah, but, but, but at what point does yourself get in the way of the other? At what point does be myself cause me to think only of my needs? And oh, on occasion, I'll fling some things out for the needs of others. Like in the story we heard just moments ago, was not the gift of Christ not flinging something at our needs, but giving himself? And are we not called and reminded at Christmas that the greatest gift we can give is just the self? to be present in people's lives, to walk through darkness with them, through hurting, 
to even throw away things that we consider to be my right in order to be like and with the other person. This is what true missionary, what being a missionary is. I was going to say missionary ship, but I don't think that's a thing. This is what it means to be a missionary is to go to where other people are and become those people. And in that sense, Jesus is the true missionary. And in that sense, missionaries don't necessarily go overseas, but missionaries go wherever they step out of themselves to be with and like the people they're ministering to. That's what a missionary is. Let's just rephrase all that and call it servant. That's what a servant is. Are you a servant? You've been served. Have you let the servant serve you? Have you learned what that looks like so you can go serve? That's the best gift we can give the world this Christmas. <laughs>